Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the life cycles of different things. I'm Emily. I'm Sarah. And Sarah, today I'm going to tell you about where the White Panther Party went. I'm so excited about this because it's, I I never really knew much about them. They are a, an anti-racist group. So let's, let's get off right off the bat. Uh, they were founded in 1968 in direct response to an interview with Huey P. Newton, who co-founded the Black Panther Party. He was asked what white people could do to support the Black Panthers, and he replied that they could form a White Panther Party. And there was a counterculture group that was involved in Detroit, Michigan first, and then moved to uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. They were part of what's called the Rainbow Coalition. And you could do a whole podcast about the Rainbow Coalition, but it was essentially counterculture groups who were aiming to do a series of things to sort of revolutionize, particularly America, but the world. And so I'm going to start with the White Panther Statement. And this is their manifesto. And they were emulating the Black Panthers when they, when they did this. It was, And these are the sort of like the 10 points that they really wanted to emphasize. So I'm just going to read them. We want freedom. We want the power for all people to determine our own destinies. Number two, we want justice. We want an immediate and total end to all cultural and political repression of the people by the vicious pig power structure and their mad dog lackeys, the police, courts, and military. We want the end of all police and military violence against the people all over the world right now! Exclamation point. Three, we want a free world economy based on the free exchange of energy and materials and the end of money. Four, we want free access to all informational media and all technology for all the people. Five, we want a free educational system. Utilizing the best procedures and machinery our modern technology can produce that will teach each man, woman, and child on Earth exactly what each needs to know to survive and grow into his or her full human potential. Six, we want all free structures from corporate rule. Well, we want to free all structures from corporate rule and turn the buildings over to the people at once! Exclamation point. We want free time and space for all humans. Dissolve all unnatural boundaries! Exclamation point. We want the freedom of all prisoners held in federal, state, county, or city jails and prisons since the so-called legal system in America, spelled with a K, makes it impossible for any man to obtain a fair and impartial trial by a jury of his peers. Nine, we want the freedom of all people who are held against their will in the conscripted armies of the oppressors throughout the world. And I'll just make a note that this was, the draft was still a thing at this point in 1968. And then number 10, we want free land, free food, free shelter, free clothing, free music, free medical care, free education, free media, everything free for everybody. So those are the 10 points of the White Panther Party. The White Panther Party was founded in 1968, as I said, by three people, uh, two men and a woman, Punplomundin, Lenny Sinclair, who's the woman, and John Sinclair. They were a married couple. And while Lenny and John Sinclair were very politically active in Detroit, they ended up moving to Ann Arbor when Detroit got, uh, we'll go with a little too hot. 
And there was also a lot of counterculture activity in, I mean, not that there wasn't in Detroit, but there was plenty in Ann Arbor, Michigan as well. And so they, uh, like most political parties at the time and most political movements, particularly anti-Nixon movements, ended up uh, on the CIA's watch list. Yes. So one of the major ways that the White Panther Party supported the Black Panther Party was being involved with management of and promotion of the proto-punk band MC5, who are a lot of fun. I highly recommend listening to their work. They had three albums that they released uh, over the course of their tenure. I want to say five years. Might have been eight years. Might have been fewer than that. I could be wrong. Anyway, (laughs) I didn't write it down. I read it somewhere, but I didn't write it down. John Sinclair was involved heavily with managing MC5, and that helped with fundraising and things like that. And then Lenny Sinclair was a still is a very talented photographer and her she won awards for her photos of mc5 in concert they were wildly popular while they were a band and they ended up going on to work in different bands after they broke up and so that's just sort of a neat there's a lot of very interesting little tendrils that came out of the white panther party and that's one of them with mc5 so about a year after White Pan- the White Panther Party was formed. Uh, John Sinclair and Pun Plamondon were implicated in the bombing of a CIA building in Ann Arbor. The building was bombed huh. on September 29th, 1968. And when they heard on the radio that there was an indictment out and basically a warrant for his arrest, Pun Plamondon actually fled the u.s and he spent time in algeria which is a country in northern africa with uh the exiled black panther eldridge cleaver so he he and uh you know a black panther hung out in northern africa which was probably pretty interesting and john sinclair ended up actually being arrested john sinclair had outstanding warrants for marijuana possession he had been hammered over and over and over again with larger and larger sentences and larger and larger penalties for different marijuana offenses and the white (sighs) pants yeah it was a it was very obviously politically motivated because it's not like john sinclair was the only person in michigan smoking weed in 1968 (laughs) right i think like there were probably fewer people that weren't smoking weed in michigan in 1968 (laughs) so it was it was one of those ways in which, uh, and I believe John Sinclair is white. Yeah, he is white. And uh, but Pun Plamondon is actually at, at least partly indigenous. Uh, Ottawa, his uh, his memoir is actually called Lost from the Ottawa, and it's a great book. It's really interesting. He does not paint himself as a hero. He is very matter of fact about things he has done that were good, that were bad, that were ugly. It's a very honest, I felt, memoir. Which is appreciable because it lends credence to all the things that he did and were in, was involved with that was earnest and useful and, you know, revolutionary in a way that was looking to make things better for people. 
John Sinclair was in prison by September 29th, 1968, so really less than a year after the group was founded, and Pun Plumundin ended up secretly re-entering the United States. He probably ran out of money. That's my best guess. And he was trying to get to northern Michigan to hide, uh, because northern Michigan, the UP and and the northern part of the, the mitten, the fingertips of the mitten has a very interesting (laughs) mix of extremely radical left-wing and a fair number of right-wing and then a lot of indigenous people and their intermingling is interesting. Anyway, Pantaplamundin was headed north. He uh, He got arrested at a routine traffic stop. So they were both in prison. And John Sinclair had been already sentenced to like 10 years for marijuana possession. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is a long time in 1968 for marijuana possession. Wait, what? How long? Nine and a half years. Almost ten years. What? And then Pumplemundin was convicted of the bombing. But then John Sinclair had not yet been convicted and was released on bond. It So they're in and out of prison. And so John Sinclair was released on bond during the appeals process Two days after a giant Free John benefit concert with performances from John Lennon, Yoko Ono, Bob Seger, Stevie Wonder. Like, this was a huge concert. Wow. And then two days later, he was released. So, you know, cool. On bond. But, okay, so I had told Sarah beforehand that I wanted to go first, partly because mine's kind of conspiracy theory-ish. And one of the reasons that I even know about the White Panther Party, pretty much the only reason I know about it in, in, and I'm interested in it in the way I am is because of a professor I had in college. I took a course. I don't even remember what it was called, but it was really interesting because the professor just assigned readings he liked and uh, talked about how, how problematic society was. It was a really interesting course. It was the type of course that conservative people think their children are being taught in all courses like it, <laughs> <laughs> he was a very radical professor you know and in what i find to be a positive way because he mostly just wanted people to be kind to each other and you know abolish the carceral state and stop uh stop thing doing things like residency schools stuff like that so there was a lot of discussion of indigenous peoples and how they've been treated it was neat it was a good class but He told our class this story that I'm about to tell you, except I checked the dates. (laughs) And his dates were all a hair off, but just a hair. Uh, And then there was like a sort of... So anyway, I'm getting off track. So Pun Plumundin is in prison. uh, And he has been convicted. John Sinclair is out of prison on bond from the marijuana charges. And he's appealing his case. And Lenny Sinclair uh, has a kid and is trying to, you know, figure out how to hold things together with the White Panther Party. So that's where we are. In 1972, this was a big year. And this was a big case that was involved with Mr. Plamundin. So Mr. Plamundin was found to be guilty for wiretapping or for bombing a CIA building. The way that the evidence was collected against him 
by the federal government was via wiretapping without a warrant. What? Yes. And that sounds bananas now, but it's a big part of why this sounds bananas is because of this decision handed down June 19th, 1972. It was United States versus the United States District Court in 1972. The course was argued February 24th, 1972 in front of the United States Supreme Court uh, with Mr. Plamondon and his lawyers stating that the wiretapping done without a warrant was unconstitutional and the, the government saying, no, it wasn't. The decision was handed down on a Monday, like I said, June 19th, 1972, finding that the wiretapping without a warrant was unconstitutional and you know we're sitting here now in 2020 post-patriot act going yeah of course it was unconstitutional but then the patriot act gutted all of this and changed it all around so there's been a lot going on since 1972 i don't know if you knew that sarah there's a lot that's happened in the united states between 1972 you know i figured because you know it's been my lifespan so (laughs) Well, I'm glad you knew. I didn't know if you knew. (laughs) So, why am I harping on dates? Because on June 17th, 1972, so a Saturday, sometime, well, this says sometimes after midnight, so I'm going to say that it, Friday to Saturday night or Saturday to Sunday night, I'm I'm a little confused on this. The Watergate complex was broken into. And the illegal wire, the warrant, I shouldn't say illegal, the warrantless wiretaps that had been put in the DNC headquarters were taken out of the Watergate building. So the Watergate building is a large hotel and office complex. And so depending on your knowledge of political scandals and, and whatnot, you may or may not know that this was what ended up being the downfall of Richard Nixon and a lot of other people. There were, I I forget how many uh, arrests and convictions there were. I want to say like 68 Holy convictions damn. or something. It was a lot. I didn't know it was that many. It's a lot. A lot of people got in a lot of trouble for this illegal activity because you got breaking and entering. You got theft. You got wiretapping. So prior to... June 17, 1972, but still in 1972, there had been two wiretaps placed on phones in the, uh, is it the, yeah, the Democratic National Convention headquarters. So two days before this Supreme Court ruling was handed down, those wiretaps were removed. And one of the major reasons that the people that uh, did the break-in got caught, it was five different guys, was because their lookout was distracted by TV. (laughs) (laughs) Like super distracted because he had like two or three different opportunities to, to warn the people he was working with and they didn't, he didn't do any of them. (laughs) Maybe should have gotten a better lookout. Just saying. Without a TV, don't watch TV while you're a lookout (laughs) for a break in for what ultimately is for the president and the FBI. Just saying. And we could go into the Watergate breakup and and uh, the breakup of the uh, presidency and the cover-ups and all, all this stuff, but uh, that's a long story. But ultimately, 
what is suspected and a very real possibility is that people involved, and I'm not going to say Richard Nixon, I'm not going to say anybody's name, people involved with the original warrantless wiretapping knew what the Supreme Court was about to hand down. And so they knew that if these wiretaps were found, it would be a scandal. They knew that the wiretapped information that they had collected wasn't really usable. They needed to get a warrant. And they were probably going to, like, go back and get a warrant to get the wiretapping in, you know. So, it is highly probable that the White Panther Party's legal entanglements were integral in the downfall of the Nixon administration. Holy moly. Exactly. And not entirely intentionally. <laughs> it's just a neat set of circumstances. It's it's very interesting. Even if it's coincidental, the timing between the Watergate break-in of two days before and the decision being handed down, I'm going to say it's probably not coincidental. But <laughs> allegedly, it's... I am alleging that it's probably not coincidental. Uh <laughs> And 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 the with I I should say this the Fourth Amendment shields private speech from surveillance unless a warrant has been granted. So that's why it's specifically unconstitutional is Fourth Amendment rights. So, Pumplemundan's exonerated and John Sinclair. Oh, here's the th- so this is they had the tendril into the proto punk movement with MC Five. They had a tendril into the downfall of the Nixon administration. There's one more very interesting tendril. There's plenty more, but the, uh, but specifically with the White Panther Party. Because of John Sinclair's appeals process for marijuana, marijuana was actually, mar- Michigan's marijuana categorization was found to be unlawful, unconstitutional. And so for a week, marijuana was legal to buy, sell, and consume in Michigan. It was decriminalized. <laughs> for a week in 1970, uh, in 1972. And then the Michigan legislature, a week later, passed a law that was constitutional that recriminalized it. Boo. But, so, right? So, when one of your leaders has been... So, Pun Plumundon was on the run and then in prison for a couple years and then involved in a Supreme Court case. He he was a busy dude. If your other founder, John Sinclair, is in and out of prison, lots of appeal processes for marijuana. Also, a regular contributor, like, he he didn't like to be called a manager, but he was very much involved in guiding MC5 in terms of uh, concert promotion and things like that. They were a very active group. It's kind of difficult to maintain the functionality of a counterculture movement as a strict sort of existence. So that coupled with the fact that White Panther Party gets thrown around a lot as a possible white supremacist group. Yeah, that's what I thought. Well, exactly. That's what that's what most people think is like, oh, it would be the opposite of the Black Panther Party instead of in contribution to the Black Panther Party. They ended up, Sinclair and Plamondon took a step back from managing the White Panther Party. And then the White Panther Party itself 
renamed was renamed to the Rainbow People's Party, which makes sense in that it was part of a, the Rainbow Coalition, and the Rainbow People's Party is more in line with the sort of we are under the umbrella of the human race while acknowledging that there are pl- plenty of races. This was not an, an intended to be a colorblindness movement or anything like that, but the intention was to mo- step away from the po- even possible uh, white supremacy thought process. And then actually the in, in the Ann Arbor, the Rainbow People's Party disbanded in 1973. So this was a very brief and very concentrated group of people that were busting their butts to change the world. I guess so. Whether they meant to or not, and in ways they could have had no way of necessarily assuming would be the case, the White Panther Party changed the world and was around for five years. Now, in Portland, Oregon, there was a White Panther Party headquarters, uh, and the F ended up raiding them in December of 1970. And then in San Francisco, the White Panther Party chapters, oh, and then there was also one in Marin and in Berkeley, remained active into the 1980s. Oh, wow. Uh, And they were involved with the, uh, one of the major reasons that the Black Panther Party ended up getting so heavily cracked down upon in ways that were I'm going to say flat out unfair and unlawful by the federal government and local governments is there there were two of them one of them was that they started running food programs how dare they yeah to just get school lunches to kids and to get food to people and the white panther party chapters in california also participated in that they involved they were involved in like bulk buying and things like that to get oh actually this is another I didn't even notice this so in to get people food and that got them a lot of attention because feeding poor people is apparently a serious problem <laughs> next firearms so the black panther party was involved in arming black people in america and apparently second amendment rights only count for the people who decide who they should count for i guess i don't know but uh (laughs) black people in america have the right to buy guns i'm the end we can discuss gun control sarah actually discussed what happens to uh surrendered firearms it's very interesting but it's legal to own guns and be black period you can do it so the fact that 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 was a major push toward firearm legislation, that's a major reason that we have firearm uh, legislation and, lim- and restrictions in the United States is because black people started buying guns and white people didn't like it. Absolutely. And that's a bad thing. Especially in say the that's South. A- that's a lot of the reason that there are... Uh- pistol permits in a lot of counties is because yep. they want the right people to buy guns. Yep. A pistol permit is a sheriff in a county has to sign off on you legally purchasing a gun. Yes. And sheriffs are elected officials. So if you elect somebody who is racist, they will readily not sign off on black people buying guns. Mm-hmm. Just going to say that. All right. So... Uh, the White Panther Party in 1984 mounted a, a successful petition drive to force Diane Feinstein, 
into a recall election. But she won. And then their house was burned down by the San Francisco police. (laughs) And then the leaders were arrested when their commune was raided without a warrant. Imagine that. uh, Without a warrant seems to be how, where the White Panther Party went. Unconstitutional, extrajudicial, lawless law enforcement. And that's why I wanted to talk about the White Panther Party. Because... A lot of things are happening today that happened to White Panther Party, to black people and white people, and much more happened to the Black Panther Party than happened to the White Panther Party. So, that's where they went. Lenny Sinclair, Pun Plamundon, and John Sinclair are all still alive. John Sinclair is a poet. He actually read a poem at uh, one of Barack Obama's inaugurations. I don't know which. And then Lenny Sinclair is an active photographer. Pun Plamundon has a memoir that is uh, an enjoyable read and I feel it's very I tend to think that if people in their memoirs don't make themselves look like a superhero it's probably a pretty honest memoir and I appreciate that so that's where they went wow I did not expect all of that like when you first told me you were going to do it I actually I, I've obviously heard of the Rainbow People's Coalition but I had no idea like that was all involved like that that was really that was really cool interesting yeah it was i i think if anything could be considered sort of a spider web of influence the white panther party through coincidence intention and a lot of extrajudicial and unconstitutional law enforcement behavior i'd like to emphasize that please they were involved in a lot of stuff they were busy for five years they were around for five years Wow. Well, actually, it, in San, in Ann Arbor, in San Francisco, they were around until 1984. When their house was burnt down by the San Francisco police and the leaders were arrested by without a warrant. Sorry. I'm just going to emphasize this again. <laughs> Why apologize? It seems like a common theme. So that's my uh, little White Panther Party ditty. There's a lot more to read about it. I This, is a, this was a brief... Inter- oh, it, let's call it an introduction. Nice. So what are you covering, Sarah? I am going to be veer off magically, whimsically. So I'm going to interrupt our regular daily fall of the American empire beset by our viral plague, the misdeeds of our orange emperor president who doesn't really care. Uh, and the protests in the street, I'm going to talk a, a little bit about whimsy. I'm going to bring you all some whimsy because I need it. And I think uh, a lot of other people might need it too. So I'm going to talk about where toy rocking horses go to retire. Oh. <laughs> it's it's called the rocking horse graveyard, but they're not dead. Uh, or more happily, Ponyhenge. Um So the area itself is already magical because of Boston, where this is. Walden Pond, if you're familiar with that, is about three miles away where Ponyhenge is. And then there's a whole bunch of fun stuff that has happened uh, as part of the American Revolution to free us from our last uh, imperial rule, the British Empire. So there's a whole lot going on in the Boston area, and Ponyhenge is a tiny whimsical part of it. So anyway, the legend, the legend goes that the original rocking horse 
that started the rocking horse herd was left over from a headless horseman Halloween display from the people that live next to the toy ponies and own the pasture the ponies live the ponies live on. So James Pingen and Elizabeth Graver, they uh, own the land that the rocking horse herd lives on. So they started the Headless Horseman Halloween decoration display and then kind of left the pony out there because they're like, oh, it's kind of romantic, looks nice. After that, other rocking horses started to appear. And James Pingen and Elizabeth Graver say people just bring them. They just show up. Uh, sometimes they're arranged in different formations like at the start of Kentucky Derby they might be arranged in a race formation or just in a circle giving its name Ponyhenge like Stonehenge only it's uh, out of toy ponies (laughs) and whoever is arranging them nobody knows it's like a large collective anonymous art project by the people in the area or people driving by so the the James Pynchon and Elizabeth Graver, they keep the grass mode and largely kind of check up on the herd. They enjoy watching how it changes. Um, the herd swells and recedes as people add ponies. So there's always more. And then James and Elizabeth and the other neighbors will go out and they'll uh, cull the herd if one of the ponies is completely falling apart uh, and it can't handle the elements because the Boston area gets a whole lot of snow. <laughs> they get some nasty winters. So the the ponies range in material. They're wood, plastic, metal. They're antique. They're not so antique. There's pictures online of them. It's a great place to go if you want to take pictures of your kids roaming about the beautiful ponies. And they seem to be a popular spot uh, in the area just cut out of kind of like a road trip mentality um, for people that live nearby. The pasture they own, like I said, are, is privately owned. Um, Elizabeth Pingen and Elizabeth, uh, I'm sorry, Elizabeth Graver and James Pingen, the owners, are fine with people visiting it as long as you're respectful. And according to comments online, uh, reviews, which I think is hilarious because it's a huge like collective public art project, and there's now reviews online of it. <laughs> <laughs> like on Yelp? Yeah, that <laughs> that uh the uh, there's now rocks and flags out so basically you can't drive your hemi into the pasture and run over the horses or whatever. Nobody's done that, but they've just added now flags and stuff so that you know it's a little more the cars are a little off from the ponies. So, if you want to find Ponyhenge, I've added it to our map on our website. So this is cool. Emily's mom had the idea that we should put a map on our website of all the places that we've mentioned in the podcast because Emily and I have talked a lot about someday after Rona, after after we survive the Rona, we want to go on a road trip uh, of the places that we can drive through and we want to do it on a colorful chicken bus. So... Yes. 
<laughs> so I've added an interactive map to our website at whereisitpodcast.com slash road trip. You can go there. Ponyhenge, I added to it already. And when I've told other people about Ponyhenge, especially my aunt, she said she hoped her old rocking horse was there. She's like, oh, I hope my old rocking horse is there. And maybe it is. You never know. Maybe your rocking horse is there living a happy to toy pony retirement enjoying the little kids that come to visit and the people that pose for their wedding pictures or whatever are out there. It's uh, outside of Boston, uh, a little bit west of Boston, uh, in a pasture in Lincoln, Massachusetts. It's on our website. You can go visit the whimsical Ponyhenge. Oh. Yeah. That's so sweet. It is sweet. I, I was like, oh, I need this story in my life right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love that it's just through sort of word of mouth at this point that it, that's just where you bring your rocking horse. Yeah, and they just appear. And I don't know, nobody knows who's like arranging them and stuff. So it's just people are just going out and arranging them for random stuff like the Kentucky Derby or you know, other stuff. Halloween, Christmas. It's sweet. Awesome. It is sweet. It's a, uh, this is a terrible comparison, but it reminds me of the hill that Nick and I walked by when we lived in West Virginia that someone had thrown a toilet down, an old toilet. <laughs> and then somebody else threw a toilet down there because, uh, you know, it's where that toilet was. And then so there were like eight or nine toilets on this hill oh is it toilet mountain it was it was a toilet mountain <laughs> it was enough to be kind of charming oh so i appreciate when groups of people sort of just agree that this is where you arrange things yeah it's it's nice I agree, too. It's nice. We all, it's a collective art project. Collective anonymous art project. And no one sh uh, pooped on it yet. No, not yet. And don't drive your Hemi into the middle. Well, no, they put rocks out. You're going to screw it up. Exactly. And you should, because you should not drive anything into the middle of anybody's stuff. You know what this, you know, I, I just said, I just said the toilet story, but I was just reminded of outside of I want to say Electric City Washington but it might be Elmer and they're near each other mm -hmm. uh, but just outside of either Electric City or Elmer there is this little tiny park that is just cram jammed with little windmills and wind catchers and and little shaped wind things Aww. and it's probably it's a lot like that it's really cute that's adorable. So, apparently, this really strikes me. <laughs> I really noticed communal sort of groupings. We should come up with like a list of them. That would be cool. Well, we need to add them on our road trip. Mm -hmm. And if you have a have a destination that we should stop on a road trip, by all means, uh, contact us at wheredoesitpodcast at gmail.com. We're happy to hear your comments, questions, concerns, or where we should go on our road trip. Yeah, let us know. We're also on Instagram, Twitter. That's it. We don't have a Facebook page. <laughs> you can find <laughs> us. We're around. We are. I'm very online. 
Sarah's got a, you know a real job and stuff. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Bob.